I'm like, oh, summer's almost over. I mean, the heat isn't almost over, but, you know, kids go back to school and all that exciting stuff. So if y'all could find your seats, we'll get started again. All right. Well, I'm really not sure how many times we say welcome and how many times we pray, but those are all good things to do at church. So welcome again. My name is Joy, and I think this is actually going to be the last time I talk for this moment. I was supposed to preach one Sunday, and that turned into two, and then now that has turned into three. So I think this is actually the end of what uh, I had prepared to talk to you about. So anyway, um, I'm supposed to introduce myself, but you've already seen me up here, so hopefully you know who I am. If you, <laughs> if you don't know who I am, let's meet afterwards and shake hands. So we've been talking about uh, waiting and how waiting is not something we're all terribly excited about, especially in American culture. We really don't have any value for any type of waiting at all. And so waiting longer than a few days or a few weeks for something we really wanted is um, uh, borderline impossible for us. And there's a lot to be learned in the Bible about waiting. There's a lot that God is at work doing when we're in seasons of waiting. So that's what we've been talking about. <clears throat> and um, we've been talking about how when we're in a moment where things are going wrong in our lives, it seems things are going wrong, or there's promises that we're waiting for and the time stretching out for their fulfillment is just getting longer and longer, or maybe... We've asked God a question, and we haven't received an answer yet. We just wish he would just answer yes or no so we could know and move on with our lives. And if, we're not in, if you're not in that moment now waiting for something in your life, maybe you have a friend who's there, or maybe you will be at that point at some place coming. And in those times, what are we going to do about some of the torment, some of the disappointment that we're feeling? And how do we wait when we're, seems as if we're waiting in a desert. And who will we be when we emerge from that desert? Will we be, have lost our faith during that time of waiting because it was just so overwhelmingly difficult? Or will we um, be able to grow into a stronger person? We have a mentality here in America that increase equals happiness and decrease equals suffering. Um, and there is an author that I quoted before who says this, and Marie, there, is, there should be a slide for this one, yeah. I forgot to give her my notes, so if I'm giving her more instructions, it's not because she's not doing her job, it's because I forgot to give her her copy to know where I was at. So here, this author says this, when Father God calls us to fast, increase, decrease will purify our souls. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. Maybe one of the reasons we resist waiting is it feels like decrease. And if decrease equals suffering rather than purification, suffering is bad, therefore waiting is bad. So let's just say one day your wait is over. You've received the long-awaited gift or thing you had been hoping for, and you might say this, it was worth waiting for. Well, of course, once you have it, of course you can say that it was worth waiting for. It's easy enough to say now. When I finally held each of my children in my arms the moment they were born, it was easy to say, you were worth waiting for. 
But during my wait, it didn't really feel worth waiting for. <laughs> and from God's perspective, and this is one of kind of the, the key foundations that I keep coming back to, it isn't that thing you were hoping for that was worth waiting for. It is you. It is a unique you who will be transformed by the experience of waiting. And that you is what God had in mind. The one he was dreaming of, that he's kindly and gently shaping, a you that you really do want to become, and that you is worth the wait. That you is the result of what the waiting and the disappointment and the suffering can do to you. So a transformation during these difficult times is going to happen within you whether you like it or not. Waiting will change you, and suffering will change you. Satan has a plan, and his plan is to use those times for your destruction. And God has a plan, and it is for your transformation. So we get to choose who we're going to cooperate with. The first week um, that I spoke, we talked about what um, an author uh, named Elizabeth Lang Thompson, she wrote a book called When God Says Wait, and she talked about pitfalls while waiting. And Marie, there should be coming up on this verse here. The pit, these pitfalls are some tricks that Satan has up his sleeve for people when they're in times of waiting and suffering. There's a verse here, James 1, 2 through 4. Sorry. There you go. The James, there we go. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let perseverance finish its work. Perseverance is the work of waiting. So here's these pitfalls. The pitfall of bitterness. I can't believe this happened to me. I don't deserve this. The pitfall of selfishness. It's all I can do to get through the day right now. I have to look out for myself. The pitfall of self-reliance. God isn't taking care of me. I'll have to take matters into my own hands. The pitfall of doubt. Does God really love me? There's no way a loving God would let his beloved child go through something like this. The pitfall of cynicism. Just look at that happy person. Just wait until something bad happens. Then they'll know happiness doesn't last. The pitfall of envy. Why would God give that person what I've been begging for all this time? The pitfall of self-pity. Everyone is happy but me. No one understands. I'm alone. The pitfall of faithlessness. God has forgotten me. His promises are failing. Why bother praying? The pitfall of depression. My life is over. I'll never be happy again unless this waiting ends. Now, I don't want to downplay the work that we have these days of mental health care and things and, and uh, say that all of this is, you know, just your own fault because it's not, and seeking help during hard times. So I don't want to downplay that. But, but Satan has traps for us, and whether they're traps that utilize weaknesses in our physical body or our upbringing or our, our emotions, our state of mind, um, these are some of the path that he has for our destruction during difficult, hard times. And what can we do about these pitfalls? First off, be alert. Satan is just as pleased about using your, using your waiting for your destruction as God is 
using it for your transformation. So if you can, don't let these traps sneak up on you. If you do and you find yourself stuck in here, repent, get help. Second, allow friends and family to speak to you. Listen to their observations. Sometimes when we are suffering, comments that people make are hurtful and they sting. But sometimes God can still use that to draw our attention to a place where we're stuck in a pit. And third, ask God to protect you during these times of waiting as you submit to his seeming silence. If we want to stay out of these pits, what are some things we can proactively do while we are waiting? When God is saying wait, we can control only two things, and we've talked about this each week. How we wait, who we are becoming along the way. How we are waiting, who are we becoming along the way. The temptation during difficult times is to torment ourselves with questions we can't answer. Questions probably nobody could answer. Questions we may never even get answered in questions. Why? Why me? How much longer? Instead, we want to focus on questions we can answer. How will I wait? Who will I become as I wait? In the book I mentioned earlier, When God Says Wait, the author describes what she calls spiritual survival skills for waiting. These are what they are. Show up to prayer, show up to worship, show up to serve, show up to God's word, show up to self-reflection, show up to joy. She called it show up to laughter, but... Um, it, when I got dug into it, I felt like it was deeper than that, so I, I made, my, made it my own. <laughs> so we're going to look at these specific survival, spiritual survival skills today and at some biblical characters who we can see these at work in their lives. So we talked about three of those characters last week, and I'm going to briefly go over them, so if you weren't here, you can kind of still get pulled into the, the story that's happening here. The first person we talked about for show up to prayer was Hannah. And this was a little um, tangible sim- sim- symbol that I brought along for prayer because um, I think traditionally when I think of prayer, I think of kneeling at an altar or kneeling down before God. And um, so knee pads reminded me of kneeling. <clears throat> um, Hannah was an Old Testament woman. She was barren for an extended time, long enough for her husband to realize she was not going to bear him any heirs and marry a different woman in addition to her long enough for that second wife to have many, many children, long enough for that second wife to torment racists, verbally shaming Hannah for her barrenness. Every year, Hannah's husband and family would travel to the temple of God. They would sacrifice, worship, and pray. Hannah showed up to pray. Year after year, tormented, shaming, year after year, praying. One day, her prayers were noticed by the temple priest, and he blessed her to receive from God what she had been asking for. Shortly after she conceived, and she kept a vow she had made while she was praying, which was to give her son over to God to be raised in the temple and become a priest. Prayer secured the promise that Hannah needed. When you have been waiting forever, you may be tempted to stop praying. Pray anyway. You might think, I've already asked God for this five gazillion times. He must be sick of hearing from me. Pray anyway. You might think, I have nothing new to say. Pray anyway. What if the path that you want to walk, that thing you are hoping for, is going to require the skill of persistent prayer? And you're going to be learning that while you wait. I never decided if it was better up here or down here, but anyway, there you go. 
All right, survival skill number two, show up to worship. And we talked about King David. <clears throat> I use the tambourine because that's a good illustration of worship, and they had tambourines at that time in history they would have used that the Bible talks about. David was the youngest of eight sons of Jesse. He was anointed king by the priest Samuel, who was the grown-up son of Hannah we just discussed. History buffs place uh, David's age between 10 and 15 years old at the time he was anointed king by Samuel. And using some conservative historical numbers, we can say David waited about 15 years between his anointing and coronation. Depending on who you read, some people would suggest that could have been as long as 27 years from his anointing to his final um, beginning of his reign as king over both Judah and Israel who were separated um, prior to him becoming king of both of them. During a great portion of that 20-something years that David waited, he was a fugitive, hiding out in the desert with a group of 200 to 600 men, some of them with their families with them, constantly on the move, trying to, be discover, trying to avoid being discovered and killed by a lunatic King Saul. David waited by worshiping. He waited by pouring out his pain and his praise in worship and the written word. And we have hundreds and hundreds of words of his worship while he waited in the Bible for us to read to carry us through our own waiting times. And I was thinking, what kind of king would David have been if he hadn't stayed fearing for his life, waiting for so many years, learning to take his heartache to God? What kind of king would David have been if life had been a little easier up to that point. If King Saul had just died 20 years earlier and David had taken the throne without waiting, without running for his life, without learning to be honorable to a man who was trying to kill him. What if the king that David became was forged while he was waiting? Who was David becoming as he waited? David became a man who could show mercy to enemies. A man who could bring intense feelings to God and work through them in a righteous way. Heartache and hurt drove David closer to God, not further away. A man who would voice for generations to come the heartache and confusion of waiting on God. A man who could fight alongside God, not against him. A man who could enjoy worship as a lifelong refuge, a haven where he waited out and waded through the lonely wilderness years. A man who was reminded who was king in his life and who was not. A man who understood and accepted God's love. The Psalms, many of which were written by David at many seasons of his life, but it's pretty obvious if you read them that a good portion of them were written during this hard time when he had a lot of enemies out to get him. And these psalms invite us to enter into a really different kind of prayer and worship. God put these words, even some of the nasty ones that say like, get my enemies and crush them and may their children, you know, never rise. <laughs> God put those words in the Bible for a purpose. Because God is saying, I get it. I get your emotions, the full scope of it, your righteousness, your unrighteousness. I want to hear about it. I can take it. And these prayers found in the Psalms, they question God, but they don't accuse. They stop short of pointing the finger. They don't say, 
I charge you of wrongdoing, God. I am angry with you. I resent your decisions and your authority, and I give up on you. Instead, they maintain a respect for God's authority versus their own humanity and acknowledging their own limited perspective and power. So how did David wait? He waited by worshiping. So even as we are begging God for what we desire, can we make it a point to end our prayers with worship, with gratitude, with honor? Doing this can transform our perspective. Praising God reminds us of his power. Gratitude reminds us of his goodness. With these things expressing our worship, praise and gratitude, this can protect our hearts and restore our hope. The third person we talked about was Timothy. Timothy is a New Testament character at the time of Paul the Apostle. He was the son of a Greek Gentile father. Oh, and this is show up for time in God's word. Um, His mother brought him up in Jewish tradition. Then later he came to Christ under the teachings of Paul. Paul began mentoring and training Timothy for leadership in the early churches, even though the Bible says Timothy was young. Eventually, Timothy became a deacon or pastor and a traveling companion of Paul. So who was Timothy becoming while he waited? A church planter, a pastor, a preacher, one filled with power and boldness, one who overcame ridicule and scorn by others with the love of God, one who disciplined himself to dedicate effort to the things of God. He was becoming a man deeply rooted in faith. This faith would carry him through many cities and countries, following after, as he served alongside Paul. He would help Paul plant churches in Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea. He would serve as a deacon or pastor for a total of five different New Testament churches. He was becoming a man who invested his time and passion in the words of God, a man who remained committed to the church, even when the church judged him, criticized him, talked behind his back, and disrespected him. A man who cared enough about living God's words to study them, take them to heart, pass them on. A man whose roots in the word of God would carry him through opposition within the church, outside the church, and eventually those roots would carry him through imprisonment and martyrdom straight to the throne room of God. God's word is a cord that keeps us connected to his voice. Even when his presence seems far away, or his voice in our ears seems silent. If you feel God isn't talking to you during a certain season of your life, he's left you plenty of words here to fall back on. Beautiful words that will strengthen you, that you can read out loud, read with your eyes, and let them soak in and sustain you. God's word lifts our eyes off of our problems and up to heaven, reviving our hope, reminding us of God's love. All right, Mary. The next three, we're going to go to a little detail, a little more detail, because everything up to now was review from the last two weeks. Mary, the mother of Jesus, specifically. I chose a magnifying glass for this one. This is show up for self-reflection. And Psalm 37, 6 through 8 says this. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Do not fret. Rest. 
wait patiently, forsake wrath, do not fret. How do we know when we are fretting? Have you ever stopped to notice that you're worried or agitated rather than just being worried or agitated? Maybe over the course of your day, feeling uneasy and then stopping to think, why am I feeling this unease or why am I responding with kind of this edge in my response? What, what exactly is bothering me so much right now? That's one illustration of self-reflection. If we do that, pause and do that, then we can identify that thing and then submit that thing that's in our heart to God. We can submit those fretful thoughts to God, to the Lord. Now, the idea of self-reflection, sometimes called self-awareness in certain spiritual um, growth um, information, uh, is something that's been a little bit new to me in the last couple years, and I had a great deal of resistance to this concept initially. I'm not going to go into the whole thing because I don't want everybody freaking out, but it would be something useful for you as you grow to investigate this further, but kind of my own basic definition of it was this. Allowing God to gently make us aware of stuff inside our hearts, stuff we were previously unable to observe about ourselves. But now we can observe it because God is gently making us aware and we're opening ourselves to his gently making us aware. This skill can shine light on dark areas of our lives and it sets the stage for God to help us grow up. If you don't know it's there, you can't fix that problem. So, and, and God, if we were made aware all in one moment of all of the failures and, and idiosyncrasies about us that God wanted to help us grow up in, we just couldn't do it all at once. It would be overwhelming. And so gently, throughout our life, he makes us aware of different things that he wants to transform in us. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a woman we can learn some of the self-reflection from. And I'm going to read a passage from Luke 1. <clears throat> where we hear this a little bit. You've probably, um, you'll recognize some of this, of course. Then Mary said, so this is the angel has come and told Mary, you're going to be pregnant by God. And this, Mary says this, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the loneliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She refers to herself here as a lowly servant. And in, within this context, that's a little bit of self-reflection. She's not deprecating herself, but she's aware of God's position and her position. And that she is going to be called blessed, even in her place of being a humble servant. In Luke chapter 2, um, this is now Jesus' birth. Angels all over the hillside, shepherds watching, and angels saying, 
Gloria to God in the highest. Now go find the baby. When the angels had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. Okay, we're skipping forward again to Jesus is now five, six years old. If I had looked up that age, I could have told you, but somewhere around there. And they're taking him to the temple. And he gets lost. If you've, if you've read this part of the Bible, you know that everybody leaves. Joseph and Mary and all their family and their other children and whoever else traveled with them leave. And Jesus is left behind in the temple. And at some point they realize he's gone. And if, you've <laughs> if I was Mary thinking that I was responsible for raising up the Son of God and I just lost him, that wouldn't really be a very good feeling. <laughs> so they go back and they're searching for him and they spend three days searching for him and they find him here in Luke 2, 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Well, you were here all this time. And all who saw him and heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching with you in great anxiety. And he said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. All right, I'm going to skip forward one more time in Mary's story. Our fast ring. <laughs> all the way through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension. Okay? And now we have disciples waiting for Pentecost, waiting for the arrival of the Holy Spirit, following Jesus' instructions after he, when he was going to leave to wait that he would send someone to come to them. This is now from Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then the disciples returned to, to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. All of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. So Mary has followed her son and been transformed over the course of his life into someone that's here after he's gone, waiting for the arrival of the Holy Spirit, following his instructions, ready to receive what's the next step in my life that you have for me, God. It's beautiful. You know, when Jesus went to his hometown to try to preach there in a section of the Bible, we read that story, and it says he was rejected there. All the people who knew him were like, what? You're not the Messiah. And Mary's not that way. She treasured those things up in her heart. She carried those words of God and let them sustain her and pull them into her state of mind throughout her life so that she would be a person who was ready to await the arrival of the Holy Spirit with the rest of Jesus' disciples and become part of the early church. Interestingly enough, when the angel appeared to Mary first to announce that she would become pregnant with God's son, 
Her response was not, why? Or, that can't be. She asked one of our questions, how? How will this be for me, since I'm a virgin? How can I participate in God's plan? And she followed that how with, here am I. We've read this phrase several times um, from the book of Luke, that Mary treasured it in her heart. I'm going to take a guess that Mary was an introvert and a thinker. And rather than using her thoughts to fret and worry over the good and bad and all the prophecies and all the things that had happened to Jesus, she treasured the words of God up for her future. Mary had a lot of waiting to do. She waited for the birth of Jesus. She waited to consummate her marriage to Joseph until after Jesus' birth. After being sent into Egypt to save Jesus' life when he was little, she waited to return to her country and her family until the danger for Jesus' life had passed. She waited for Jesus to grow up into the Messiah. She waited for his death, knowing the prophecy that a sword would pierce her heart. She waited for his resurrection. And finally, she waited along with the other disciples for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Waiting is an opportunity to grow. It's typically not an opportunity we are going to choose for ourselves, but it is an opportunity nonetheless. We've all watched um, waiting destroy people. Sometimes that destruction comes from them being stuck in the wrong questions, questions that are casting blame, why, how long. When we show up to self-reflection, we begin asking questions about ourselves. What can we do? How can we use this time? What's happening in my heart? Who am I becoming while I'm waiting? How can I cooperate with God? So how did Mary wait? Mary's waiting story shows us the power of our thought life. Part of Mary's transformation as she waited was focusing her thoughts on the promises and the word of God, on his plan and on his goodness. She stashed away memories from early in his life. She and stored those away as God's historical goodness, as God's plan for Jesus that had already come to pass, the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, and she stored those away during her time of waiting and reminded herself of God's historical goodness. She also stored away the promises that were made about Jesus' future, and she kept these things at the forefront of her mind. Who was Mary becoming while she waited? These things transformed Mary into a woman who could raise her son and give her son away to a life far from home where she didn't, he didn't take over the family business of carpentry, a brutal death, and a glorious resurrection. A woman who could humbly follow her son from death to Pentecost. Mary was becoming a woman who could resist the lies of the enemy by calling to mind the truth. A woman who used her memory of the past deeds of God to lay a foundation for her present decisions and state of mind. A woman who used the future promises of God to sustain her during suffering, rather than letting those unfulfilled promises become fodder for discontent. A woman who stored away God's goodness in her heart to recall it over and over again, letting his goodness take away the pain of loss, restore her hope, and take her, lead her into a future filled with even greater works of God following Jesus' ascension. All right, survival skill number five, show up to serve. Hold on, because this one's back here. All right, this character we're going to talk about is Joseph, um, the ancient Joseph, not 
the husband of Mary, Joseph. This Joseph we're talking about is the great-grandson of Abraham. At the beginning of the story, we're going to read he's 17 years old. He's the favorite son of his father, the only child born to his father's favorite wife. If you've ever been subjected to favoritism from your parents or grandparents or boss or whoever, authority in your life, you know how devastating this can be to the relationships around you. To make matters worse, Joseph had dreams at night that he was ruling over his brothers and decided to tell everybody about that. Finally fed up with this, his very jealous brothers conspired to kill him, then changed their minds and sold him into slavery instead. And here is where we're going to pick up his story in Genesis chapter 39. And I'm sorry I don't have all these scriptures up there, but it was just like so much copy-pasting, so I didn't do it. You'll have to use your imagination. When Joseph arrived in Egypt as a captive of the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased from them by Potiphar, a member of the personal staff of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now this man, Potiphar, was the captain of the king's bodyguard and his chief executioner. Great guy to work for. <laughs> The Lord greatly blessed Joseph there in the home of his master so that everything he did succeeded. Potiphar noticed this and realized the Lord was with Joseph in a very special way. So Joseph naturally became quite a favorite with him. Soon he was put in charge of the administration of Potiphar's household and all of his business affairs. At once, the Lord began blessing Potiphar for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs began to run smoothly. His crops flourished, his flocks multiplied. So Potiphar gave Joseph the complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. He hadn't a worry in the world with Joseph there, except to decide what he wanted to eat. Joseph, by the way, was a very handsome young man. One day at about this time, Potiphar's wife began making eyes at Joseph and suggested that he come and sleep with her. Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in the entire household. He himself has no more authority here than I have. He has held back nothing from me except you, yourself, because you are his wife. How can I do such a wicked thing as this? It would be a great sin against God. But she kept on with her suggestions day after day, even though he refused to listen and kept out of her way as much as possible. Then one day, as he was in the house going about his work, as it happened, no one else was around at the time. She came and grabbed him by the sleeve, demanding, sleep with me. He tore himself away, but as he did, his jacket slipped off, and she was left holding it as he fled from the house. When she saw that she had his jacket and that he had fled, she began screaming. And when the other men around the place came running in to see what had happened, she was crying hysterically. My husband had to bring in this Hebrew slave to insult us, she sobbed. He tried to rape me, but when I screamed, he ran and forgot to take his jacket. She kept the jacket, and when her husband came home that night, she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you've had around here, he tried to rape me, and I was only saved by my screams. He fled, leaving his jacket behind. Well, when her husband heard his wife's story, he was furious. He threw Joseph into prison. Thankfully, he didn't do the chief executioner job on him right away. Where the king's prisoners were kept in chains. But the Lord was with Joseph there too, and was kind to him by granting him favor with the chief jailer. In fact, the jailer soon handed over the entire prison administration to Joseph so that all the other prisoners were responsible to him. The chief jailer had no more worries after that, for Joseph took care of everything. And the Lord was with him so that everything ran smoothly and well. 
All right, so doing a little historical digging, there's estimated nine years that Joseph spent as a slave to Potiphar. Then he spends approximately three years in prison. Eventually, he's brought out of prison to interpret dreams for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was impressed by Joseph's wisdom and put him in charge of the entire country. At this time in history, Egypt is on its way to becoming the most powerful country in the ancient world. There's maybe, depending on where you're looking, there's maybe four or five hundred years between Joseph's life and when Egypt entered the peak of its power in ancient world history. So part of Joseph's life and what he did here was setting the stage for that to come into place. Joseph spent nine years there working for Pharaoh. Um, well, longer, but for this part was nine years. Seven years where they had plenty of food, and then the first two years of famine. He's now around 40 years old when his brothers come to Egypt during the famine, trying to purchase food for their families so they don't all starve to death. So Joseph waited 20 years since he was sold into slavery by his brothers to see his family again. How did Joseph wait? He worked, he served, he was faithful and responsible. He put effort and excellence into the tasks in front of him. He learned to work in obscurity, to serve when he was mistreated and abused and seduced. If I could speculate, I would wonder if it just so happened to you, sometime in the near future, you would be sold into slavery. It might be possible you could feel abandoned by God and doubt him for not taking better care of you to keep you out of slavery. If you spent seven years serving faithfully and diligently in your time as a slave, only to be lied about and thrown into jail, it's possible while sitting there in jail you might feel abandoned by God or possibly doubt him for not taking better care of you. If you spent two or three years in jail and the friends who were supposed to help you get out forgot about you, it's possible you would feel discouraged and alone, abandoned by a God who once promised you that you would have immense political power. If that's how Joseph felt some of the time, it surely wasn't the thought pattern he remained in very long. Instead, he found a way to serve. So who did Joseph become while he was waiting? He became humble. Gone was the arrogant Joseph, telling his brothers his dreams of power and prestige. And he became great. His humility and work ethic were the tools to pave a road to great influence. He became a man who knew his place, which was a servant of a great God. Each time he was called on to interpret dreams, he began by saying this, I cannot do this. Only God can explain your dreams. But Joseph learned to serve even in the most difficult of times, as a slave, as a prisoner. He learned the skills to lead the entire nation of Egypt while in slavery and in prison. His leadership capability was forged in a place where it seemed God had abandoned him. Throughout his story, we hear this refrain, because God was with him. God was with him in slavery. God was with him in prison. God was with him, alone in a foreign land, far from family and anyone who shared his faith. God was with him while he waited 12 years to rise from slavery to commander of the greatest nation on earth at that time. Waiting and service was Joseph's training ground for greatness. So sometimes when we are stuck in a time of waiting and we're stuck in selfishness or self-pity or doubt, 
any one of those pitfalls we talked about. Service can fill up some of those empty spaces in our hearts that aren't full because the thing we're waiting for isn't there. And service can fill in some of those gaps even when something is still missing. Choosing service instead of selfishness is one of the best things we can do for ourselves. God created us to desire meaning and purpose and love and fulfillment. And sometimes when we're waiting, it seems like those things are eluding us. There isn't meaning or purpose or love during this time. But giving and serving can help fill in those spaces as we wait. All right, last one. This one's the shortest one, so hey. All right. Show up to laugh, show up to joy. And we're going to illustrate this with me so I can share a personal story with you. Not because I'm super perfect at waiting. Psalm 33:20 says this, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So one of Satan's easy traps while we wait that wasn't in our pitfall list, but um, it kind of comes into play with all of them really, is isolation. Isolating ourselves is a way of protecting ourselves from some of the awkward glances, painful comments, or the ache of being around people who happen to have that thing that we want, that we don't have. Isolating ourselves is a risky endeavor because loneliness typically breeds further despair and depression, and it pushes people out of our lives who might have been able to help us. So this is here because um, some of my season of waiting that I'll talk about had to do with waiting to be married, but the day that a woman is getting married should hopefully be one of the most joyful days on her life, and so that day is, should be a day of joy. So that's kind of the point of this thing here. <clears throat> so during college, I was uneasy with the length of time that I was waiting to find the right guy to marry. No one had come along yet in my entire 20 years of life, and no one had come along specifically during my education at a Christian college, which was a good place to meet a guy. My discontent had been growing over several years, and it peaked with a season of depression and suicidal thoughts. From my perspective, none of my friends or family understood my pain, so I isolated myself from all those very insensitive people, my family included. I really wasn't telling anybody about the pain that was going on inside of me. Over a Thanksgiving break, um, my third or fourth year, somewhere like that, instead of going home to Texas, I was isolating myself, I stayed on the empty campus, isolated in my dorm room. A friend of mine who was married and had family living locally invited me to join them for Thanksgiving dinner. I didn't want to go because watching people have fun and laugh sounded like too much effort and heartache for my lonely soul. I decided to go anyway, mainly because there would be plenty to eat and the cafeteria was closed, <laughs> and I had no car. I didn't know until after I arrived that day that my friend's family were all Christians and really good people. Her sisters asked me questions and drew me out while we were washing up dishes together. The kids all played together happily, and the couples and families who were present were filled with so much joy, and they made sure to invite me into their circle instead of leaving me out. They had no idea what a dark pit I was in at that time. At some point during the afternoon celebration at their home, I remember thinking, oh, this is what it feels like to be happy. I haven't felt this in a really long time. So that day was the breaking point in my isolation and depression. I remembered how it felt to laugh, to be joyful, to be with a family filled with joy. And finding humor during my heartache helped to bring some healing. 
Author Elizabeth Thompson says this, we don't have to wait for perfect to find joy. The opposite holds true too. If we wait for perfect, we will never find joy. Sometimes we can't imagine feeling happy unless life comes in the exact packaging we pictured and demanded. I'll never be happy until, well, I can't be content until, and we have to get rid of all these rules that we set for our joy, the untils and the unlesses. We have to open our hearts, open up to the possibility of happiness to what God is doing now, even if it isn't the form that we imagined. And no matter what you're waiting for right now, even if there is a hole in your heart where a thing that has been promised to you is still waiting for. Joy is still possible. Laughter is still possible. Sometimes when we are waiting for the life we want, we forget to enjoy the life that we have. Our life might be incomplete and imperfect, so is everyone else's around us, even if it doesn't seem that way, but it's still a life, your life, God's gift to you. So who was I becoming while I waited? When the students all returned from Thanksgiving break, I began breaking out of my isolation by walking back to the dorm with a couple guys from class. One of those guys turned out to be rather interesting, and the rest is history. I thank God for the gift of my husband, Benjamin. The time I spent waiting for him, and even the darkness that I walked him, forged me into a woman who would stay committed to my husband even when our marriage went through dark times, too. I had learned to find joy in the darkness before Benjamin, and I have learned to find joy in times of darkness that have come during our time. I have learned that with perseverance, darkness passes, and great joy comes in the morning. Now Benjamin and I still have some promises of God that we're waiting on to come to pass. Now I can wait with a lot more joy, a lot less isolation, a lot more peace, a lot less despair and complaining. It's not that I never mess up. You know I do. It's that I know where the story ends. In the end, God wins. If I get what I'm waiting for, God wins. If I never get what I'm waiting for, God wins. God wins in my life because I'm different, because I accepted the path of transformation while I was waiting. All right. Too much summary makes it hard to get through the rest of the content. <clears throat> so here we go. Characters we studied today. Hannah, she persisted in prayer while being shamed inside her own home. David, he worshipped while he was a fugitive waiting to become king. Joseph, he served while he was a slave and a prisoner. Timothy spent time in God's word when he was a disrespected young leader. Mary opened her thoughts to self-reflection while waiting for the full expression of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in her life. And me, who learned to find joy again even while I was still waiting. All of these men and women managed to cling onto two conflicting emotions at the same time, hope and surrender. Hope for the promise of God, surrender to God's perfect timing. So if there are blessings that you want or things you need, ask boldly, persistently. The Bible tells us to do this. When the battle changes you, wounds you, your scars can be used for good. They're reminders of God's power and weakness. I can't tell you how your season of waiting will end, but end it will. And whatever God's final answer, you will be stronger for the struggle. God wins. 
What can we choose while we are waiting? We don't get to choose what happens to us. We choose what happens in us. We choose who we become. In, this, <clears throat> in God's making something good in our lives, he invites our participation. He invites us into spirit... Um, I'm gonna, sorry, Marie, I'm going to go back to the Romans 8.20. I, I, I did this one last week, but some of you weren't here, and it's good. So it stands repeating to get to the end of what we're saying here. So <clears throat> there's going to be months and days when we mope, and weeks where we twiddle our thumbs, and days when getting out of bed is the best that we can do. We're not going to wait perfectly just because we listen to all of these great skills. And we probably will not even be able to say that everything that came out of our time of waiting was good. But I hope we can say, I'm thankful for the person I became because of that time. Waiting has transformed everything. Romans 8.28 says this, We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. It doesn't say God sends all things or that God meant for bad things to happen. It says, in all things, in all good, all bad, all confusion, all despair, all loss, all hope, all death, all grief, all suffering, in all things, God has the ability and intention to make something good come out of it for you, in you, the one who is called according to his purpose. And he invites our participation in that process, invites us to spiritual transformation, invites us to stop saying, why? and begin asking, how will I respond? Who am I becoming in my response? All right, so at the end of your waiting, or wherever you are, there's three things. God said no. Sometimes life takes us places we don't want to go. Sick beds, crosses, tombs. Sometimes God stands outside the tomb and holds us while we cry. Mingles his tears with yours. Sometimes he flashes a grin, rolls up his sleeves, and awakes the dead. Our suffering becomes our story. God's no's are as much part of your testimony as his yeses. If you're struggling over a no from God, here's some few suggestions. Give yourself permission some time to grieve. It's not wrong to be sad, to mourn the loss of something or someone that you wanted. Feeling sad doesn't mean you don't trust God or that you're rebelling against his will. Feeling sad means you're a human that he made with feelings. But let your no remind you not to seek heaven here on earth, that heaven still is waiting. When God says yes, what do we do? Hooray! Finally, it's over. I can move on with my life. As we enjoy the gift, will we remember our giver? The gratefulness we learned to practice while we were waiting should be a skill we are overflowing with when we have a chance to turn to our giver and say, thank you. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for this long-awaited, beautiful, blessed gift. And thank you for transforming me as I waited. Thank you for sustaining me during grief, for not giving up on me when I was giving up on you. Thank you for gently holding my sorrow and loss and despair. Thank you for doing a work in my heart that could not be wrought any other way. Thank you for using all things for good in my life. Thank you for being a good God who has waited all this time for me, waiting for me to come with my hope, my surrender, and say as Mary did, here am I, may be to me as you have said. Thank you for the wait.
And when God is saying, still wait. While you're waiting, I hope you can do more than survive. I hope you can pray, worship, serve, dig into God's word, learn self-reflection, and laugh. I hope these skills will transform you into someone worth waiting for. You are worth the wait. Your pain will be worth the wait. Your joy will be worth the wait. Your transformation will be worth the wait. God sees you. He knows you. And he is waiting patiently for you. And has said, you are worth waiting for. So, I know we're over. But I wanted to do this really quickly as I ended today. Turn to someone near you. If there's not someone near you, go find someone just two people at a time, please. Just one-on-one. -on -one. And I want you to just tell them one thing that you're waiting for. And you can be as vulnerable or not vulnerable as you like, depending on who your companion is. Just tell them one thing that you're waiting for, and then we're all going to pray together. Let's see. Melissa, do you want to come over here with Celeste, maybe? All right, let's all stand, and we're going to pray together. If you're still chatting, that's okay. That's okay, too. You can pray with each other when you're ready. Lord, I thank you that you have spent eternity waiting for us, waiting for us to turn to you and say, Lord, would you transform me? Would you sustain me? I want to become that me that you created. And I'm willing to let this really difficult time that I don't want to be in be one of your tools to make that happen. Lord, I pray that you will remind us that earth is not all of it. And if we never get what we're waiting for, your kingdom is coming and heaven is coming. And the beautiful things that await us there are beyond our imagination. And that if your answer is yes, that we could say, God, thank you. Thank you, thank you. And we store those away. We store those memories away like Mary did for other hard times. And while we wait, that we could say, Lord, how am I going to wait? How do you want me to wait? Who do you want me to become right now? Thank you for that beautiful transformation that you have in store for each of us. You're such a good God. In your name we pray. Amen. If you need extra prayer, just come on up here to the front. There will be folks um, ready to pray with you. If, um, and uh, otherwise, we'll see you next week.